Alright, if you'll please take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 12. So where, where have we been? Well, you know, Jesus rode into Jerusalem triumphantly on Palm Sunday, and then Monday He went and He cleansed the temple. And then on Tuesday, Jesus uh, goes head to head with the religious establishment. The Sanhedrin, which is the, the body of Jewish religious leaders, they uh, confronted Jesus. First, over the nature and source of his authority, and Jesus won that round. And so they, they huddled up together and decided they need to change tactics. So they're going to divide and conquer. And first up is the team of Pharisees and Herodians. And they're going to lay a trap for Jesus about whether or not you should pay taxes to Caesar. And again, Jesus handily won that round, leaving them utterly amazed at him. So they tapped out and they sent in the Sadducees. And the Sadducees are going to go in and grill Jesus with questions, uh, hypothetical questions about the nature of marriage and the resurrection. And again, Jesus sent them packing in disgrace. So the Sanhedrin had one kind of ace in the hole, one last ditch effort. They had this up-and-coming young scribe who was so smart. They sent him in with the hope that they would get Jesus with the question about what is the greatest commandment. But the Sanhedrin's hope was quickly dashed because this young scribe nearly joined Jesus' team and he agreed with Jesus and commended Jesus on his answer. So Jesus has bested the field. Debate is closed. Jesus 4, Sanhedrin 0. But Jesus didn't quit the field. Rather, he took it. And now he's gone on the offense with one final question that he's going to ask them. And Jesus posed a question they couldn't answer. They had no answer. And he follows that up with two criticisms that point out their hypocrisy and their pride. Now, this section we're going to look at today, particularly the story about the widow and and the widow's mites, really bookends Jesus' public ministry in Mark's gospel. It highlights his purpose and our call to deny ourselves to serve rather than to be served, to to not seek to be the first, but rather to be the last and to be the servant of all, to take up our crosses and to follow Jesus. Because the call to discipleship, life in the kingdom of God, is a call to humble, sacrificial service, to experience that resurrection life that we talked about last week, to enter the kingdom of God like a child. We have to overcome our pride. We have to lay down our pride. And in today's three brief exchanges, we see how we do that. How can we overcome our pride and embrace the life that Jesus has been teaching on and demonstrating throughout his ministry? Well, the first thing we're going to see here in Mark 12, beginning in verse 35, the first thing is we need to replace intellectual pride with a teachable spirit. Replace our intellectual pride with a teachable spirit. Let's look at verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. Now, if you remember, throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus has been trying to keep his messianic identity a secret, right? He heals people and tells them to keep it quiet. 
When a demon that he's about to cast out tries to cry out that he's the Son of God, he silences him. Even after Peter's great confession that Jesus is the Christ and after the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus tells them to keep all that to themselves until after his death and resurrection. But here in the temple, in front of this crowd and the religious leaders, Jesus finally, openly identifies himself as the Messiah. He embraces what blind Bartimaeus had said about him on Sunday, what the crowds were were singing and praising as he rode into Jerusalem, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of David, and the King of Israel. Now, why now? Why is Jesus finally letting the cat out of the bag? Because his time has come. And Jesus is now setting into motion the final events of this week that will lead to his death on the cross. And Jesus does this by using the one Old Testament chapter quoted more than any other in the New Testament. At least 30 some odd times this chapter has been quoted, specifically Psalm 110 verse 1 that says, This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, if you were to open up your Bibles to Psalm 110, you would see that it says this is a Psalm of David, as as Jesus said. Jesus confirmed that. David wrote this, and he confirms that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit led David to write these things. Now, in my Bible, it also gives the heading that calls it the the psalm about the priestly king. Now, in the Hebrew, the Lord declared to my Lord, there are two different words for Lord. The first is Yahweh, the second is Adonai. So the Lord God said to my Lord, my king, Lord with a lowercase l, David says that the Lord God is speaking to the king, and it's, it's the language of coronation. It's like a coronation psalm. But the psalm isn't about David. David the one is the one writing it. David says the Lord God spoke to my Lord, my king. And then if you look on in verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn, sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever, according to the pattern of Melchizedek. David was never a priest. In the Old Testament, kings and priests were separate offices. So to whom is this psalm about? To whom is David referring? To whom is the Lord making this promise that he's going to make him a priest forever? Well, the religious leaders of Jesus' day knew the answer. The Messiah. That's what this psalm is about. It's about the Messiah. And from the psalms to the prophets to even God's promise to David when he made him king, the Old Testament clearly teaches that there will be a future king from the line of David who will rule and reign forever on Israel's throne. The Messiah would be a descendant of David. This wasn't in dispute. The Sanhedrin knew this. So Jesus delivers this knockout punch question. He says, David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? That's a good question. That's a good question. How can the Messiah both be David's descendant and his Lord if the Messiah is just a man? Well, given their beliefs and their assumptions about messianic prophecies, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, had no good answer. Jesus used the Scripture, the very Scriptures that they prided themselves on, that they consider themselves experts in. Jesus used this to blow their minds and to blow out of the water their limited understanding of who the Messiah was and what he was going to come to do. Now, Jesus here affirms that he is the Messiah and that as the Messiah, he is the son of David. But more than that, he's not just the son of David. 
And this was the part that they couldn't understand. He was also the Son of God. They couldn't understand that. The religious leaders mistakenly thought of the Messiah and God's kingdom that He was going to bring. They saw it through their own political and national interests. They believed that it was going to be a political Messiah, a political kingdom, not a spiritual one. They thought that it was going to be focused only on Israel, not on all the nations. You know, if you remember last week, the scribe that came and questioned Jesus about the greatest commandment, Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Why is that? Because he came with a teachable spirit. He laid aside his intellectual pride. He was actually open to hearing what Jesus had to say. He wasn't coming loaded for bear. He wanted to learn. Proverbs 13.10 says that pride leads to conflict, but those who take advice, those who listen, those who have a teachable spirit are wise. The religious establishment had grown quite prideful in their thinking, in their theology. In fact, in one confrontation with them, Jesus says this in John chapter 5. He said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But the Scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. They were so certain in their beliefs that even with the Lord God standing before them in the flesh, they missed it. They couldn't see it. They refused to turn to Jesus. What about us? Are we prideful or do we have teachable spirits? Are we so certain in what we think we know that we're unwilling to be open to correction, to rebuke, to instruction and training from God's Word? Proverbs chapter 8, verses 34 and 35 says, Blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway, for those who find me find life and receive favor from the Lord. This verse tells us what it takes to lay aside our intellectual pride, and to have a teachable spirit. First, it tells us we have to listen to God's Word. We have to listen to God's Word. Now, we talked about this last week, that the Bible is God-breathed. It is inspired, it is infallible and inerrant, and it is fully sufficient for everything we need in faith and life. We can trust God's Word. And Paul says it's profitable. It's profitable to teach us what is true to rebuke us of the sin in our lives, to correct us when we go astray and to train us to do what's right. But you know what we have to do for the Bible to be profitable to us? We have to pick it up and open it, don't we? We have to read it. We have to believe it. We have to pray it. We have to live it out. We can become a teachable spirit if we listen to to God's Word. But secondly, that proverb tells us that we also have to watch and wait for the Lord. So when we've got decisions that we have to make and we're not sure what decision to make, or when there's a complex issue of the day that we feel compelled to, to speak out on, to, to talk to someone about, to, to you know, post something on Facebook about, we need to take the time, slow down, take the time, prayerfully study God's Word. What does Scripture have to say about this. Seek counsel from godly men and women who are smarter than we are. That's one of the reasons why God gave us the church. We've got a body of fellow believers that we can go to for guidance and for help. That's why God gives us preachers and teachers. In fact, Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 15. 
He says, and he, he himself, meaning Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. To build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. And he says that when that happens, then we'll no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into Him who is the head, Christ. How do we avoid getting caught up in the false teachings of our day? How do we keep ourselves being tossed about by every opinion poll and every time some news pundit or politician shifts gear on some moral standard? How can we be grounded in what is good and true and right no matter what the current atmosphere of our culture says? By studying God's Word. By going to it with a humble, teachable, prayerful spirit. By studying it with other believers. By sitting under biblical sound preaching. By allowing the Spirit to give us understanding and help us apply God's Word to our lives. That is the essence of what it means to have a teachable spirit. And this is so important because our theology always influences our praxis. In other words, how we live and how we treat other people is informed and shaped by what we believe to be true about ourselves, about God, and about the world. It's our worldview. Our worldview influences the way we live and interact with others. And so that's why Jesus goes on next to criticize the scribes because their mistaken theology about the Messiah shaped within them this pride of privilege, this holier-than-thou hypocrisy that ended up taking advantage of the very people they were supposed to be serving. Let's look at Mark 12, uh, picking it up in verse 38. He also said in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. So the second thing we have to do to overcome our pride is we have to replace the hypocrisy of pride with authentic spirituality. Authentic spirituality. Jesus here is criticizing religious showmanship. They're showing off, Ben. They're showing off religiously. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus does this. He denounces the scribes and the Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites because they're living out their faith to please others, for the approval of others. They're doing it for show. Particularly, Jesus really goes into this in Matthew's Gospel. He, he calls them out for their elaborate, address, their, their elaborate attire, their desire for recognition and honor. In Matthew 23, Jesus says, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels of their garments long. In other words, they wear all kinds of religious bling to just show how super spiritual they are. They love the place of honor at banquets, the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. 
And Jesus goes on. He denounces their long-winded prayers on the street corner that's done for show. He, He criticized them for the way that they give in such a way to really show off and say, look at me, look how much I'm giving to God and how they play it up when they fast and really make themselves look like they're really suffering for God. Their faith had become a superficial religion. It was all about, look at me. Look how super spiritual I am. Aren't I great? Isn't God lucky to have me on His side? Look at the big words I pray with. Look at all the money I give. Look how seriously I take fasting. And Jesus warned against this kind of prideful religion that's all about impressing others rather than living for God. Jesus, in fact, in Matthew 6, 1, in the Sermon on the Mount said, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If that's your motivation, he says, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. But rather, Jesus said, pray in your closet. Give in such a way that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. When you fast, do it in secret. And Jesus said, if you do that, your Father who sees what is done in secret, then He'll reward you. An authentic spirituality is so different from the hypocritical religion that's all about pride and performance, and it's different in two key ways. The first is that an authentic spirituality is about loving God rather than earning praise. It's about loving God, not getting the praise of people. Now, Jesus here in Mark, he first stresses the way the scribes tried to distinguish themselves by their robes, right? Right? by their dress, and in Matthew, their phylacteries and their tassels and all this stuff. We know throughout history and across cultures, people have often used their dress to distinguish themselves, to set themselves apart, to denote their position or their profession. I mean, even today, we think about a policeman's uniform. We think about a surgeon's smock or a doctor's stethoscope. We think about, you know, maybe you might think of a clerical collar or something like that. Even, you know, Ben talked about in the children's sermon the other day about an airline pilot, right? He's got his hat, his uniform, that that little badge that he wears. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. And oftentimes those kinds of symbols can actually be helpful for us. The problem is the motivation behind it, the heart. And Jesus accused the scribes of being motivated for the praise of others. They wanted people to bow and to make way as they walked through town and to call them rabbi and all these terms of of honor and respect. They wanted the best seats of distinction in the synagogue. If they were Baptists, that means they'd want to be in the balcony. (laughs) Sorry, y'all. But in the synagogue, it's up here, right? They'd want to be in the choir loft. They wanted to be close to the preacher. We're really different today, aren't we? It meant that they wanted the, the, the preferential treatment at all the parties and the banquets. They wanted to be the first in line and to have the best seats and, and to get the best wine first. They turned their faith into a way to elevate themselves and shine the spotlight on them. When all along their job was to point people to God and shine the spotlight on Him, they had it backwards. True, authentic spirituality is about loving and worshiping and glorifying God. As John the Baptist said about his relationship with Jesus, He must increase and I must decrease. We should all want to disappear into the shadow of the cross so we can lift high and make much of Jesus Christ. Because when we make it about ourselves, 
It's nothing short of idolatry. Authentic spirituality is about loving God, not seeking the praise of others. And secondly, it's about loving people rather than gaining possessions and power. I said this the other week, you can't love God if you aren't willing to love your brother and sister. Our vertical relationship with God is, 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 is completely tied and linked with our relationship with each other. The vertical and the horizontal. Think about a, a cross. It takes both our relationship with God and our relationship with others. We love God and love people. Those are the greatest commandments. And even the two tablets of the Ten Commandments are divided into the four, first four about loving God and the last six about loving others. We must love people more than power and possessions. But the religious leaders were elevating themselves above God in their attitudes, in their motives, in their behaviors. Now, they wouldn't say they were doing that, but they were doing that. And as a result, if you elevate yourself up to the level of God, you're necessarily going to look down on other people as less than yourself, right? As beneath you. Our view of God and where we stand with God will always impact our view of others and how we treat them. And so Jesus criticized this even harsher. Now, what were the scribes doing? Well, you have to remember that the, the scribes, you know, they're, they've got this position in the community. They've got a position of, of trust and they were using it to defraud some of the most defenseless and vulnerable in Jewish society, the widows. Remember, scribes were highly educated. They were literate. They were basically religious lawyers. And, and as such, they were often employed to draw up estates and, to, and, and, and work with wills and do different things like that. And because they were connected to the synagogue, they were trusted. These were trustworthy. These were men of God, right? Well, apparently many scribes were misusing their position and abusing their trust to take advantage and defraud these widows of what little earthly goods they had. And the part in here about prayers, long prayers for show, some scholars think that maybe these scribes were even charging people, you know, I'll pray for you for so much money. And the more words, the more money. I kind of like the newspaper, right? You pay per word in, in the advertisements, right? So you pay per word for the prayer. And, and you can't help but read this and not think of some of the TV preachers and faith healers, right? Like Joel Osteen or Benny Hinn or Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, really going back there. They earn trust with their tears. And they preach a feel-good message of prosperity. If you just send them some money, they'll send you this prayer cloth they've prayed over. You just touch the TV screen and give a sizable donation, God will answer your prayers. If you buy my book, you can live your best life now. I read about a tough police captain who took over a scandal-ridden police department. And there was a, a faction of police officers in there basically functioning like a burglar's ring within the police department. And because they were using their badge and their position to, to defraud people, that police captain called them worse than thieves. That's what Jesus is saying about these scribes. They're using their sacred position, the trust that they have because of their association with God for personal gain, to disadvantage others, to treat people unethically and unjustly. And God said they are worse than thieves. They're breaking the second commandment. They're not just breaking the first commandment about loving God. They're breaking the second greatest commandment. They're failing to love their neighbors as themselves. Now listen to me. If we want to have an authentic spirituality, we've got to do more than just not defraud people. Okay, That, that, that should be the easy part, y'all. That should be the low-hanging fruit. 
we should seek to serve others with a generous spirit. Right? I love what Paul says in Philippians 2.4, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Jesus says, basically, the scribes, they did everything out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. They considered themselves better than others. And they looked out only for their own interests to the disadvantage of other people. They did the exact opposite of that. What about us? Where are we on that spectrum? You, you may not be actively you know, being dishonest with people, but are we being blind and deaf to the needs around us, the cries of the people in our community? Are we, are we living authentic spiritual lives that love God and love others, that seek to serve rather than be served? Jesus next turns from criticizing the religious leaders for taking advantage of the widows to actually spotlighting a widow as the model of what it looks like to have an authentic spirituality. Let's look at Mark 12, 41 through 44. Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. And then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The final way this morning we can overcome our pride is we need to replace religious pride with sacrificial discipleship about sacrificial discipleship. It's interesting in this story, I imagine Jesus and his disciples, maybe they're taking a break. The the Sadducees and the Pharisees, all of them, they've left Jesus. And so they're just kind of sitting there in the temple, people watching. You ever people watch? They're people watching. And it's kind of a little uncouth, I guess, but they're watching people put money into the offering plate. That'd kind of be like, you know, Christy sitting there watching you as you're putting your money in the box over here. How much was on that check? That's kind of what Jesus was doing. It seems a little strange. So they're sitting there watching people put their offering into the offering boxes. Now, the Jewish Mishnah tells us what this looked like. It's not like our little boxes here. They had these 13 trumpet, like shofar ram's horn shaped uh, bronze offering chests. And each one was for a different kind of special offering. You know, one's the organ fund and one's capital improvements and, you know, whatever. So they got all these different funds out there. And, and people are putting them in. And because they only have coins, they don't have paper money, they don't have checks to write, they have coins, and you've got these bronze trumpet-shaped things, when you put your money in it, you could imagine it could make a lot of racket. And so you could imagine the religious pride of some of these people putting in all these coins. Look at me. You hear that? You hear how generous I am? And they made a show of it. And so Jesus is putting them to shame by pointing out the widow who put in two small coins, the widow's mites. The, the actual name of the Jewish coin is the lepta. The smallest denomination of Jew, Jewish coin has been they were so small and thin that literally on a, if it's a really windy day, they could blow out of your hand. They were worth next to nothing. And notice the irony. Jesus said that it was more. He described this woman's offering as more. Everything in this woman's life had always been described as less. But here Jesus says... It's more. 
Yes, in financial terms, her offering was less valuable. It was insignificant. It was unworthy of comparing with these large sums of money. But thank God, his exchange rate is far different than ours. As one preacher said, that which made no difference in the books of the temple is immortalized in the book of life. And why is that? Because Jesus doesn't care about the amount we give as much as He does the attitude with which we give it. It's not the value of the gift. It's the cost to the giver that matters. And Jesus' point is that all these prideful religious folks thought they were giving so much as they give. They thought they were all that. But they were giving from what they could spare. The widow didn't think she was giving much at all. But she was giving all she had. She was giving out of her need. They gave from their surplus. She gave from her need. Everything she had to live on. This story kind of reminds me of a rabbinic commentary on Leviticus that tells the story of a priest who... Uh, rejects the offering of this poor woman. She brings a handful of grain and he just dismisses it as insignificant. But that night the Lord chastised him in a dream saying, do not despise her. It's as if she had offered her life. You see, in God's kingdom, giving is to be measured not by its count, but its cost. Not by its amount, but its portion. Not by what is given, but by what is kept. It's not about money. It's about the spirit in which it's given. What about you? What about me? What is our attitude in giving and in serving? Whether it's our money, our time, our talents. Do we do it out of sense of duty? Out of obligation because we feel guilty? Do we give and serve to be seen and applauded by others? Do we do it as a way to control other people and get our way in the church? Or do we give with a cheerful heart? a grateful response in love to God so that we can partner with Him in His work in the world. Why do you give? Why do you serve? We need to have the attitude of the Macedonian Christians. Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 8, he says, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord. And then by the will of God, also to us. They were like that widow. They didn't have much to give. But the desire to give was strong. And they gave what they could. I said earlier that this story, particularly this one about the widow, really is a bookend for all of Jesus' life and ministry in Mark. If you remember, if you go all the way back to Mark chapter 1, Jesus' call to His first disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, He said, Come, follow Me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they left behind their nets and their boats to follow Jesus. Remember that? And then halfway through Mark's Gospel, in Mark chapter 8, at this critical climax of the book, When Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus follows that up with an explanation of what it looks like to follow Him as the Messiah. He said in Mark 8, If anyone wants to follow after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because Me and the Gospel will save it. And then remember that hinge moment in Mark chapter 10 when Jesus kind of gives us His purpose statement. He says... For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give His life as a ransom for many. Listen to me. The call to discipleship to follow Jesus and make more disciples. The challenge to deny ourselves and take up our crosses and follow Jesus. The calling to seek to be servants rather than be served and support Jesus' redemptive work in the world. These are perfectly illustrated in this woman giving her two leptas. The widow's mite. She denied herself. She left it all behind. She gave an undivided heart in worship to God. Like the fishermen that left their boats and their nets. She gave all she had. She answered the call to discipleship. You could really paraphrase this phrase in the Greek as she laid down her whole life. She gave her all. Now listen. In a couple of chapters, is that not what Jesus is going to do? You see, this woman is not only a model of faith for us, she foreshadows what Jesus will do in a couple of days as He hangs on that cross and lays down His life. He gives all that He has as a ransom for many, and that includes you, and that includes me. The invitation today is simple. Will you overcome your pride? Will you lay down your pride? I hope this morning you won't let anybody's opinion, you won't let your ego stand in the way of you coming to Jesus Christ and obeying His call today. He wants you to know the riches of God's grace. He wants you to be able to experience life abundant, eternal. But the only way you can do that is to lay down your pride, turn from your sins, and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus gave His all for you that you might have eternal life and know God's grace. Will you do that today? Will you lay down your pride and your sins and come today to Jesus? Somebody here or online or on the radio needs to do that today. Become a part of God's family. Experience that new beginning, that fresh start, that resurrection life we talked about last week. Maybe for you it's a different sort of pride. Maybe you need to lay down your pride because you became a Christian long ago but you've never been baptized. Maybe you're embarrassed by that. And you think, well, good night. I've been coming to this church for years. I'm a grown man. I'm a grown woman. And I've not been baptized? Listen, we don't care. Lay down your pride. Come in obedience this morning. Maybe God's been calling you to unite with this church family or to surrender to His call to full-time Christian ministry and you've been making excuses and you've been resisting. Put aside your pride and come in faith to obey Him. Or maybe we just need to confess our intellectual pride and recommit ourselves to having a teachable spirit, to study God's Word. Maybe it's hypocrisy and religious pride that we need to confess this morning because our attitude about church and about giving and serving have all been about what's in it for me. How does this benefit for me? We've been making it about us instead of about God. This altar is open for us to come and to lay down our pride and to surrender ourselves fully to Jesus Christ. I pray that today you would be able to leave this room knowing in your heart that you have committed yourself to an authentic spirituality that loves God and loves people. Would you do that today? Let's stand and pray together. Father, thank you so much for loving us despite ourselves. Lord, we, we can...
put on a good front and we can, we can kid ourselves and, and fool others. We can have this false sense of pride. But Lord, you see through it all. You know our hearts. You know our flaws. You know our weaknesses. You know our insecurities. You know our fears. And you love us anyway. And you're infinitely patient with us. Father, if there's anyone here today that needs to come and put their trust in Jesus Christ and come to you for salvation and forgiveness, I pray they would not delay, but step out today. While you're calling them, while you're near, they would come to you. If there's any here that need to come, you're not with this church, to come for baptism, to surrender to your call in their life for full-time Christian service or to serve this church in some capacity, they've been resistant, I pray they would come and humble surrender to you. Father, I know all of us have much we can confess and pray about today to help us lay aside our ego, lay aside our pride, take off the masks of hypocrisy, and live authentic lives, loving you and loving others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Whatever God's Spirit speaks to you today, I pray you would listen and obey. Would you surrender your all to Him?